Please stand for the reading from God's word, if you're able. Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 28, verses 17 to 31. Follow along on page 937 in the Pew Bible or on the screen behind me. And Paul, talking about Paul here. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open to Acts 28, and let's uh, pray again and ask God to bless us as we look into his word. Lord, we know that you are speaking, and so our prayer right now is for us to be able to hear. Would we have ears to hear what you have to say to your church this morning through your holy word. Uh, We need your spirit for that to happen. And so be with us, be present, help us to see you, to hear you, to trust you, to follow you according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I think about the novels on my shelf at home, which are slowly now ending up in boxes, uh, but when I think about those novels on my shelf, my favorite chapter in each one, almost without exception, is the last chapter in that story. I don't read a ton of novels, so the fact that I love the last chapter may simply betray my lack of literary sophistication, but the last chapter is what brings the story together. It's the wrap-up. It's the conclusion. It's the resolution of all of the suspense of everything that you've been reading 
all of the drama, the tension, it, it comes together in that moment. It's that, that moment when you can feel like you can finally breathe. Uh, the, the tension's resolved, the twists finally make sense, the protagonist usually walks away victorious. I think of the last chapter in The Last Battle, uh, the final book of Lewis's Narnia series. You know with only two sermons left here, I have to work in as many Lewis or Tolkien illustrations as possible. But seriously, that the last chapter of The Last Battle, I cannot make it through that chapter without tears. It is a beautiful story. And I remember the first time I read it to, to Joshua when he was five, his immediate response was, read it again, Dad. Read it again. I want to hear that chapter again. Because there's a vindication, there's a, a resolution, a success. And that feels good. Not because you're ready to be done with that book and move on. In fact, if, if a conclusion is done really well, it brings a resolution that actually leaves you wanting more. You're kind of sad that the story's over, and you have this sense that, that there's really more to tell. Well, this morning we conclude our series in the book of Acts by looking at the last chapter, the resolution of Luke's great two-volume work on Jesus and his church. Now, of course, this is not the last chapter of Paul's story, uh, nor of the church's story. In fact, the final chapter of Acts feels marvelously incomplete. It genuinely leaves you wanting more with this sense that there is so much more to the story than what's recorded here. Just as, just as Acts chapter 1 wasn't really the beginning of the story, but the continuation of all that Jesus had begun to do and to teach, now carried on by his church in the power and presence of the Spirit, so chapter 28 isn't really the end. The gospel story continues. But the book doesn't. It is the last chapter of the book. And as the conclusion, you expect some sort of resolution to the driving point of the story. You expect to find out, was the mission successful? The charge that they received back in chapter 8, verse 1, to bear witness to Christ in the power of the Spirit in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So was that mission successful? It depends on how you define success. You know, if by success you mean that Paul finally makes it to Rome... Sure, I guess. You know, the last eight chapters have, have followed him on his journey from Jerusalem to Rome through all sorts of perilous situations. But if by success you mean that all who once opposed the message of Christ have come to their senses and got on board with the gospel message, no, no, we don't see that here. This, if if by success, you mean all that, that who used to persecute the church are, are now kind of championing it? No. The story ends with Paul still in prison by the Roman authorities. He's under house arrest. If by success you mean the completion of the mission, 
that the gospel reaches the ends of the earth, that, that all who are meant to hear it have finally heard it. Well, no, there's still so many who have not heard by the end of this book. In that sense, in that typical sense of the kind of resolution you expect in the concluding chapter, the last chapter of, of Acts feels a little bit underwhelming. But if we let this last chapter define success for us, so instead of imposing our expectations onto Luke's conclusion the way we think the chapter should end, if we let Luke's conclusion tell us what to expect in terms of ministry success, well then a pretty startling and yet settling picture begins to emerge. A picture marked by unashamed loyalty and an enduring witness to Israel's Messiah, Jesus. It's the question of Paul's loyalty to Israel that has gotten him into this trouble and ultimately landed him in Rome, as we noted last week in chapter 21. Uh, it was the accusation in Jerusalem there that started this whole kerfuffle. Uh, this is the man, the, the, the Jews accusing Paul here, this is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, which of course wasn't true. But as a result of that accusation, Paul ended up being arrested. Uh, and so far, he's had to testify before the Jewish council in Jerusalem, which we looked at last week. Uh, then before Felix the governor in Caesarea, and then again uh, before Festus, who replaced Felix, because Felix left him in prison, and then before King Agrippa. And, and in all of these trials, none of the Roman inquisitors here have found him guilty of any charge, certainly not a charge deserving death. But his accusers would not relent. And so it was only by appealing to his Roman citizenship and ultimately by appealing to Caesar that Paul was able to escape being killed. And that has finally, uh, and, and now that that has finally landed him in Rome, just three days after he arrives in this city, he summons the local Jewish leaders in order to make an apologetic that he is actually deeply loyal to Israel that it is in fact his loyalty to Israel and the hope of Israel that has gotten him into this trouble. And so in verses 17 to 22, he calls the local Jewish leaders to make his case. It's the Jewish leaders that have been leveling the accusations, so he wants them to come and, and allow him to make his case. He invites his accusers to face him. And he defends his innocence and loyalty to Israel in three ways. First, he declares his innocence regarding Jewish customs. Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So despite the fact that Paul understood one is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, that didn't mean Paul went around trashing the law uh, or offending his Jewish brethren. The reports that he had brought Gentiles into the temple were, were false. He is, 
He's innocent with regard to Israel's customs. So that's his first defense. Second, he is innocent with regard to Rome's investigation. When they'd examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for death for the death penalty in my case. Rome's investigation could not corroborate the charges against him by the Jewish leadership. They found them unconvincing, and they wanted to let Paul go. And then third, he's innocent with regard to his motives in appealing to Caesar. He did not appeal to Caesar, the Roman emperor, because he had a beef with his own people or as a way to get back at them or cause them trouble. He appealed to him because his own people continued to want to kill him and he had no choice. But because the Jews objected to Rome's desire to set him free, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. He's not here to accuse the Jews or the Jewish leadership. I'm not here for some sort of grudge or vendetta. Paul is a loyal Jew. As he summarizes in verse 20, it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. It's not because I've rejected Israel or Judaism. And so he has nothing to hide from his accusers. And they surprisingly have nothing to accuse him of all of a sudden. Verses 21 and 22. They have no letters from Judea, no evil reports against him, though you kind of have to wonder, do they honestly not know who Paul is or are they kind of playing coy here? But, But they are interested in his views. You know, we don't really have anything to accuse you of all of a sudden, but we would like to hear more because they've heard of the Christians, even if they haven't heard of Paul, and everything they've heard of them is not good. So, so they, would, they invite him to tell them more. But, but this whole first scene raises a few questions. One big question, really. Why does Paul defend his innocence? Why does Paul defend his innocence. Why make an apology for his loyalty to Israel? Why not just take the slander and count it all joy to be persecuted for the sake of Christ? I mean, isn't that what taking up your cross and following Jesus involves, right? Jesus was silent before his accusers. And so isn't this a little bit petty and self-serving for Paul to be so defensive? Why does he defend his innocence here? Because it's his loyalty to Israel, the thing he's being charged of, being disloyal to Israel, it's actually his loyalty to Israel that compels him to worship Jesus and his loyalty to Israel that he hopes will give him a voice with his Jewish brothers and sisters. Look again at verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul is not proclaiming Jesus out of rebellion to Israel, but because he's loyal to Israel and to the hope of Israel, and Jesus is that hope. In fact, now that God has answered his promises and sent his Messiah, 
loyalty to Israel is no longer marked by adherence to the law, but by faith in Israel's Messiah, Jesus. And so Paul defends his loyalty in order to appeal to their loyalty and somehow convince them to follow Christ. And there's an interesting application uh, here for us in our mission to make Christ known today. Uh, Not necessarily just simply defending ourselves against accusations. That part is easy for us no matter what. Nobody likes to be accused of something. Defending our innocence comes very naturally. But is what we are defending our own reputation before the world or our right to speak into the world? Paul is not concerned about his reputation here. He has no problem being slandered or written off as scum of the earth. He's concerned about retaining his voice among the Jews as long as he can in order to proclaim Christ. There are times when, or, when in order to either gain or retain a hearing with someone that it is wise to defend our innocence against unjust or false accusations, to refute false charges, which, of course, requires first that they're actually false, that we're living in integrity as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as we talked about last week, to live in such a way that the accusations won't stick. And there are also times when in order to gain or retain a hearing with someone, to not just defend our innocence against false charges, but also to appeal to a common loyalty, a common loyalty we share with our accusers to help them see that if they really care about that thing that we're both committed to, then they're actually going to want to follow Jesus because there's no way to accomplish that apart from Him. So for instance, it's not uncommon for Christians today Uh, to be criticized or written off because of our belief in hell, in divine judgment, God's wrath to come, because that just sounds so unfair and unloving. And if anybody believes something like that, they must be entirely unloving and utterly disinterested in justice. That's just not fair. But it's actually our loyalty to love and justice that compels us to uphold the reality of God's judgment. Because God's judgment is fueled by love and justice. A love that gets angry at the injustice of this world and commits to doing something about it to make it right. And not only the injustice of this world, but the cosmic injustice of sin against his throne from whence all of this mess comes. So so the reality is if you're really committed to justice, to seeing the world made right and everything put back together the way it should be, then you should look to God to establish it. Because none of our human efforts are, are actually capable of solving the injustices of this world. Only God is holy enough to render righteous verdicts 
Only God is powerful enough to make right what's wrong in this world, and only God's love is deep enough to guarantee him to act regardless of who's being offended. If you're really loyal to justice and love, then you should be on board with God and his justice and love, which is in partly in part expressed in judgment. So, so our belief in hell or divine judgment should not disqualify the church from having a voice in the public square. That's an occasion to defend our innocence of the charges. We're not rebelling against justice or love. It's our loyalty to justice and love that compels us to uphold the importance of God's judgment and the gospel of Christ that saves us from that judgment, which is the whole point. So don't be afraid to defend your right to speak and bear witness to Christ in a world that slanders you in effort to silence the gospel. Paul defends his right to speak. But don't be surprised if people still reject you and continue to refuse to hear. Because that's what happens in the next scene when the Jewish leaders gather to actually hear Paul's views. So in verses 23 to 28, the the local Jewish leaders have gathered. The crowd has grown. They go to where Paul is staying in greater numbers. And Paul, having defended his loyalty to Israel's hope, now declares to his brothers and sisters what that hope is, the identity of that hope, namely Jesus Christ. He makes an apologetic not simply for his loyalty to Israel. He makes an apologetic that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And there's a a little detail in that verse I, I just don't want us to miss here. From morning to evening... He expounded to them. So, y'all think my sermons are long sometimes? Just morning to evening. All I'm saying, it could be worse. But the duration of time is simply reflective of the urgency and importance of the message. Paul doesn't want his brothers and sisters in Judaism to miss out on the fulfillment of their faith. If they want to be loyal to Israel, they must be loyal to her king, Jesus. And so he testifies to the kingdom of God and he tries to convince them about Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of all of Israel's hope, but what God promised to their forefathers, he has accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And Paul bases his argument on Israel's own scriptures, which is pretty remarkable. If you remember how Luke's first volume concluded, the book of Luke, chapter 24, how it ended with Jesus beginning with Moses and all the prophets interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now Luke's second volume ends with Paul doing the exact same thing testifying to Jesus from all of Scripture. How what God envisioned for His creation, His people reflecting His image, enjoying His presence, obeying His rule, filling the earth with His glory, 
what, what was then compromised through the fall, Jesus renews and restores that through his life, death, and resurrection. That what God promised to Abraham to make him into a great nation and make him the father of many nations and bless all nations on earth through him, he has accomplished through Jesus, the seed of Abraham in whom we become children of Abraham through faith in Christ. What God accomplished for Israel in the Passover and the Exodus, redeeming his people from slavery and sin through the blood of a perfect substitute, the Passover lamb. He accomplished for all people for all time with the priceless and precious blood of Christ, the true Passover lamb. What God promised David, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever, ruling God's people as his son, he fulfilled by sending Jesus, the son of David, whose body did not see decay, who is right now seated at the right hand of God, ruling from heaven. What God promised through the prophets to redeem his people from idolatry, to raise them from spiritual death, to forgive their sins and cleanse their hearts and fill them with His Spirit, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and, and not just Israel, but all nations and people groups, he has, he has accomplished and fulfilled through Jesus. He is the prophet like Moses who speaks all of God's words he is the root of Jesse who will establish justice on the earth. He's the suffering servant, bruised for our iniquity. He's the forsaken king whose hands and feet were pierced. He is the hope of Israel and of every nation. As Paul said earlier to Agrippa back in chapter 26, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus is the hope of Israel. And we're told in verse 24 that some were convinced by what Paul said. They saw the connection between the promise and the fulfillment, that following Jesus wasn't rebelling against Judaism, but embracing the fulfillment of it. And so they believed. They believed. And, and that's the kind of end of the story we're looking for, right? That's the kind of conclusion you want in a book like Acts, that you get to the end and everybody believed. It would be great if Luke just stopped right there. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Not everyone who hears the word is going to respond to that word with faith. So if you define, set, uh, if you define success by convincing everyone of what you're preaching, if that's your definition, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to be, it's not going to happen. 
And I think we all know that. We all know that not everyone we share Christ with is going to believe, but it doesn't make it easy, especially when you have poured your life into someone, you've invested, you've given yourselves to them, and then to watch them just reject it and walk away the, the sadness of that reality. But it will happen. And that doesn't mean that God's word is failing. It doesn't mean that God's word is failing. Some will believe, others will not. That's what happens here. But then it actually gets worse. The whole situation seems to fall apart. Those who were convinced and those who disbelieved start disagreeing with each other, and then they all take off when Paul drops this little bomb on them in verse 25. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, with their eyes they can barely, with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, I'm not sure which is more offensive to a Jewish audience, associating them with their spiritually blind and deaf ancestors in Isaiah 6, or announcing to them that the Gentiles are more spiritually open to God's salvation than you. I'm pretty sure you're going to lose your audience either way. So why is Paul so offensive here? I mean, did he just lose his temper? Like a teacher who's lost control of the class and just slams their textbook down? Or, or, a, or a kid playing on the ball field is just tired of losing, so they just take their ball and go home. He was so careful to defend his loyalty to Israel and to argue for his right to have a voice among the Jews to build capital with them. Why does he go and just spend it all in one shot here? Throw away everything that he just built up by dropping a grenade at the end of his speech and clearing the room. Because while there is a time to defend our innocence or appeal to a common loyalty in order to gain or retain a hearing with someone and try to persuade them of Christ, there's also a time to call out people's guilt and expose their disloyalty to God lest they presume upon His acceptance when in fact they remain under His condemnation to let the sharp edge of the gospel be felt so that no one can walk away and claim, I did not know. I didn't know what it meant to reject Christ, to not give them that opportunity. That is what God is doing even in the passage that Paul quotes from Isaiah 6. And we love Isaiah 6, right? Here I am, Lord, send me. And then the message he's given is a message of condemnation. He sends his prophet to deliver a sharp word of condemnation, not because he's done with Israel, but in order to provoke those who remain to repentance and faith. 
So in the same way, Paul's not being a jerk here. He's not trying to be edgy or angular. He is passionately pleading for repentance and faith and calling them out directly for their lack of it. This is a prophetic word. And we need to be willing in our ministry of the word to call for a response to the gospel and to warn people of the implications of not responding in faith, which will invariably offend some people. You will lose the voice that you've worked so hard to gain. But don't let it be because you're offensive. Don't let it be because you're a jerk. Make sure it's because the gospel's offensive. And don't be afraid of the gospel's offense. Sometimes in our, in our effort to, to gain a hearing in the world or uh, in a world that wants to silence us, we worry so much about nuance and posture that we never really get around to saying what the gospel says. We're afraid that if we go there, we're going to lose our voice with that person. But what's the point of building capital if you never spend it? What's the point of keeping your voice if you never preach the gospel? Whose reputation am I really protecting in that moment? So, yes, be nuanced. Be winsome. Build bridges. Absolutely. Don't be a jerk. But don't be afraid, having done all of that, to say what the gospel says and call people to a response. Because at the end of the day, no amount of nuance is going to keep you from public slander when they realize what you really believe. You can only hold on to that capital so long. Success as a church is not marked by the world's accolades or even by racking up the number of conversions. God is the one who has to open their hearts. If the conclusion to Acts gives us any indication, then success means unashamed loyalty and enduring witness to the gospel of Jesus. That's success as a church. And that's the final note that, that Paul, that the book ends on with Paul's enduring witness. When, when he redirects his evangelistic efforts to the Gentiles in Rome in verse 28, which he's done previously in Pisidian Antioch and Corinth and, and Ephesus, at the same time Luke tells us in verse 30, that while Paul lived in Rome, he welcomed all who came to him. And, and I think that all there is intentional. It's almost certainly a, a tip of the hat to both Jew and Gentile. That's usually when Paul's talking about all uh, in his epistles. That all is, is a both Jew and Gentile all very often. So despite such an overwhelming rejection of his message, he keeps preaching to anyone willing to hear. He keeps proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And, and look at those last couple of phrases there. With all boldness and without hindrance. 
There is a very real sense in which the Word of God prevails in this book. It continues to multiply through the bold, Spirit-empowered proclamation of God's people. Despite opposition, despite rejection, Paul keeps preaching. And that's my prayer for Westgate, to keep preaching the Word from the pulpit in the classroom, across the dinner table, at the water cooler, proclaim God's word with all boldness to one another and to the world. This book has the words of life. This book reveals the redemption of God in Jesus. As Peter proclaimed earlier in chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So keep holding fast to God's word and keep holding it out to others. There's a time in doing that where you will have to make a case for your innocence and your right to speak on spiritual matters, to build capital. And there's a time in proclaiming the salvation of Jesus to spend that capital and warn people of the dangers of rejecting Christ, that they might have a real sense of what's at stake. But whatever you do, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep preaching the word. That is the measure of your success. Unashamed loyalty to Jesus and an enduring witness to his gospel. That is a chapter I'm happy to read again and again and again. And that's my prayer for us, for all of us together. Let's ask God to do it. Lord Jesus Christ, this is your church. We are your people, ruled by your word, changed by your word, saved through the preaching of your word, the proclamation of who you are and what you have done. Lord, would you continue to guide us, to nurture us, to change us, to use us? Would you make Westgate Church increasingly unashamed in our loyalty to you and give us a persevering endurance in our witness to you. Lord, that's our prayer. We need you to do it. We thank you that you are with us by your spirit, that you've given us your spirit for that very reason, that we might know you, that we might love you, and that we might make much of you among all nations. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.